welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Welcome to the podcast. Today I would like to share with you that I have been working on uh, writing a book. I've been encouraged to write a book based on my research and the content that has generated the subjects for the various episodes that I've done here for Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. And so uh, over the last several months, I've been working at formatting concepts into various chapters and thinking about how that could all come together. And so for today, as like a little sneak peek maybe of what this book uh, might ultimately entail, I thought I would read the chapter that I have titled Harmony. So it's my research and some of my thoughts going into the topic of harmony. I begin with a quote from a paper written by Charles Spence and Nicola Di Stefano that simply says, Harmony conceived of as the proportions amongst different parts. The use of musical terminology, and specifically the concept of harmony, to describe colors and, their, and other aspects of visual artworks can be traced back in Western cultures to theorists such as Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle. Early notions of harmony centered on sensory stimuli which form balance through unification. For instance, in music, two or more notes played simultaneously can be harmonious. Seeking to find congruence between other sensory experiences, philosophers work to identify how taste, touch, smell, and color vision acted in similar ways. This gave rise to concepts of sensory dichotomies, such as sweet and bitter and dark and light, sensory experiences that complemented each other and were therefore harmonious. In this way, the, the term complement means to complete, and harmony is an agreement of the parts. Eventually, complementary colors came to be identified as those which completed each other by mixing to a neutral color of black, white, or gray. Over the centuries, the term complement became synonymous with the concept of harmony. An early example of this complementary harmonious relationship lies in the golden section or the golden ratio where a line is bisected in a way that the relation of the two segments are the same ratio to each other as the larger segment is to the entire line. In this way, the relation of the parts to the greater whole complete each other and achieve harmony. 
It was not until the 19th and 20th centuries that the word harmony became used widely as a direct qualitative statement pertaining to color usage and design, or composition, another musical term, identifying a work as successful or correct. Conversely, the term discordant became associated with a pejorative, anti-harmonious moniker of art and design. The seminal work which paved the way for artists and educators to make these assertions was Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Zerfarbelera of 1810, translated into, Engl- into the English language as A Theory of Colors in 1840. So then a heading, Sense and Vision. Sense and Vision. In 350 BCE, Aristotle's On Sense and the Sensible theorizes that colors exist as combinations of invisible white and black particles which flow into the eye through the pupil and have an effect on the gel-like fluid within the eye, the vitreous humor. He drew from his observations that if an object or plane is neither white nor black, it has color and he refers to those colors as intermediate colors. Therefore, according to Aristotle, the ratios of white and black, which form the intermediate colors, relate to each other mathematically in a similar way to music, or how compound sounds are created by two or more sounds. Then quoting Aristotle, such then is a possible way of conceiving the existence of a plurality of colors besides white and black. And we may suppose that of this plurality, many are the result of a numerical ratio. And accordingly, we may regard all these colors, all those based on numerical ratios, as analogous to the sounds that enter into music and suppose that those involving simple numerical ratios, like the concords in music, may be those generally regarded as most agreeable." End quote. In forming a direct comparison between color and sound, Aristotle also describes the sense of taste, which he refers to as savior. He relates savior, 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 I don't know, savior to color vision and outlines how both are composed of seven components or species, a term he employs that is similar to the modern day terms hue or family. Aristotle's intermediate colors occur between black and white, therefore, the intermediate saviors occur between the inducer sensations of sweet and bitter. These taste pairings bring pleasure due to the ratios of their combinations. He writes, as the intermediate colors arise from the mixtures of white and black, so the intermediate saviors arise from sweet and bitter. And these saviors too, severally involve either a definite ratio or else an indefinite ratio of degree between their components. The tastes of which give pleasure in the combination 
are those which have their components joined in a definite ratio, end quote. Aristotle proceeds to describe the various intermediate saviors and their pairing to intermediate colors. Quote, saviors and colors, it will be observed, contain respectively about the same number of species, for there are seven species of each, if, as is reasonable, we regard dun, or gray, as a variety of black, for the alternative Alternative is that yellow should be classed with white as rich with sweet. While the irreducible colors, crimson, violet, leek green, and deep blue, come between white and black, and from these all others are divided by mixture. End quote. It is important to note that the concept of Aristotle's color species and their exact number of seven endured for over 2,000 years, when in 1703, Sir Isaac Newton published his book Optics and the findings of his experiments refracting white light. Throughout the course of Newton's many experiments with light, he documents in the text how he first identified the color hues of the visible spectrum as red, yellow, green, blue, and violet. In subsequent experiments, he added orange to the list, and then finally indigo, so that he could specifically match the number of hues to the seven notes of the harmonious musical octave that was first described by Pythagoras who related that number to the known number of heavenly bodies, or planets, moon, and sun, in our solar system. So then a heading, Harmony and Nature. During the interim between the writings of ancient Greek scholars and philosophers and Newton's 18th century optics, the concept of harmony in European art and design wove its way into the lexicon of Renaissance artisans through the publications of theorists such as Leon Battista Alberti. He specifically addresses the harmonious capabilities of architecture in his treatise or series of books, Dira Edificatoria, or On the Art of Building, published between 1443 and 1452. Within the text of Book 9, Alberti describes a process of determining whether or not the design of a building achieves harmony of its parts by examining three basic components of its structure. First being the number, or the number of objects, the outline, or its shape, their shapes, and their position or composition. These three aspects of design, if handled well, represent what Alberti termed as a concanitas when taken as a whole. Concanitas is a term Alberti used to describe the successful combining of individual elements to achieve harmony in architecture. And he equated the highest form of concanitas 
to the design of nature. Alberti writes, Beauty is a form of sympathy and consonance of the parts within a body according to definite number, outline, and position, as dictated by Concanitas, the absolute and fundamental rule of nature. The skillful achievement of Alberti's Concanitas in the realm of architecture design is similar to the way words can be chosen and placed into an order to form sentences to express meaning, some words and sentences deemed to be more eloquent than others. Mary Atwood cites the term concanitas as originating by the first century BCE Roman Marcus Tillus Cicero. She writes, Words, when connected together, embellish a style if they produce a certain symmetry, or concanitas, which disappears when the words are changed, though the thought remains the same. This passage describing the concept of concanitas has a curious similarity to the way in which Leonardo da Vinci wrote about harmony and color usage in a collection of his writings published in 1632 as Trattato della Pittura, or A Treatise on Painting. Under the section heading Contrast, Harmony, and reflexes in regards to color, da Vinci writes, What is fine is not always beautiful and good. I address this to such painters as are so attached to the beauty of colors that they regret being obliged to give them almost imperceptible shadows, not considering the beauty of relief which figures acquire by, uh, by a proper gradation of strength of shadows. Such persons may be compared to those speakers who in conversation make use of many fine words without meaning, which altogether scarcely form one good sentence. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, I think that's funny. The term concanitas pairs with another term that Alberti used through an earlier publication on painting techniques and color usage, a treatise called De Pittura, or On Painting, of 1435 and 1436. In Book 2 of De Pittura, Alberti uses the term Historia to identify a well-balanced composition where the narrative of the scene is consistent and the figures and architecture have uniform scale and hence harmonize with each other. The Astoria is achieved via the design's circumscriptions, or contour of shapes, composition, their placement, and color, or the palette. A similar way in which Alberti evaluates the success of the architect. Alberti emphasizes that the way these elements of the Astoria achieve an agreement with each other is due to the art artist's observations of nature which is similar to how he describes beauty in architecture as a, quote, form of sympathy and consonance of the parts in a concatenus. This is a direct refutiation of methods practiced in Europe over the previous 150 years and articulated in Sanino Sanini's Il Libro della Arte, 
or the Craftsman's Handbook, which describes methods of painting and other craft traditions dating back to Giotto and the early 13th century. Sanini describes an approach to design where elements of the work are accepted as a symbolic and the narrative of the scene takes precedent over other considerations, such as maintaining a sympathy or agreement of proportions between figures and their relative scale to the rest of the scene. With Alberti, ideas relating to what is or is not harmonious or consonant relate directly to the observation of nature over other considerations, such as aesthetics or decoration. Direct observation of light illuminating an object and causing shadows forms a relief or the illusion of three-dimensionality, and consistency of scale are valued above all other considerations. Alberti writes, but I should like the highest level of attainment in industry and art to rest as the learned mountain on knowing how to use black and white. It is worth all of your study and diligence to know how to use these two well, because light and shadow make things appear in relief. This notion of harmony and consonance fall in line with the final paragraph Da Vinci writes in Trattata della Pittura, quote, Whoever flatters themselves that they can retain in their memory all the effects of nature is deceived, for our memory is not so capacious. Therefore, consult nature for everything. End quote. So then a heading, Harmony and Emotion. Returning to Aristotle, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's publication of 1810, Zur or A Theory of Colors, quotes the Greek philosopher as he sought to establish psychological connections to colors, their combinations, and how they are deemed to harmonize with each other. Goethe writes, quoting Aristotle, We are delighted with harmony because it is the union of contrary principles having a ratio to each other, end quote. Referring to Aristotle's view of light being composed of white and black particles impacting the fluid of the eye, Goethe draws three conclusions that will have profound ramifications on how concepts of color harmonies are, under, are understood moving forward into the 19th century. First, he posits that color vision is the result of the retina being in active or passive states. Second, he infers that after images are the result of, of portions of the retina recovering after being in a state of activation. Third, he lays the groundwork for colors to be seen and evaluated as being expressive. To this last point of colors being expressive, Goethe shifts the argument for how color is generated away from Newton's controlled experiments of refracting light and places the emphasis on the romantic ideals of colors of color being emotive and originating within the soul of the viewer. 
Later, in 1816, Arthur Schopenhauer would write, expounding on what he viewed as Goethe's incomplete theory of color and its relation to the individual. Schopenhauer writes, Yet all these theories share the same mistake, from the oldest theory to the latest by Goethe. They all speak only about the modif- what modifications of light or the surface of a body must undergo to show color, whether through decomposition into its components or through clouding or any other combination with shade. That is to evoke the, that specific sensation in the eye that cannot be described, but can only be sensuously demonstrated. Instead, the correct way is obviously to de- direct our attention first of all, to the sensation itself and investigate if we could not determine from its nature and conformity what it consists of psychologically in itself, end quote. Schopenhauer is a key figure in pairing concepts of color harmonies to human psychology and emotion he, along with Goethe, are both cited by Johannes Itten and Joseph Albers in their writing, particularly in terms of Itten and the foundation of color theory instruction in the preliminary course at the Bauhaus School in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. Itten explicitly writes that color combinations that mix to a neutral gray, a neutral gray, white, or black, are objectively harmonious. And any color combination that does not mix to a neutral color are deemed as discordant or expressive. So then a heading, Harmony and Gray. Colors may mix to a neutral gray, white, or black under two distinct methods. The first is through the subtractive method, where pigments are mixed. The second is through the additive method, which is the mixing of light wavelengths. Complementary colors in the subtractive method are those across from each other on the color wheel, and when mixed, they produce a dark gray or black. Generally, subtractive colors reflect less light when they are mixed together, therefore pigments mix towards black. In the additive method, light wavelengths mix towards white, and complementary colors, also known as supplementary colors, mix to white or or gray if the light is not bright. In 1810, within the text of A Theory of Colors, Goethe linked the concept of complementary colors to afterimages, a visual phenomenon first described in 1742 and 43 by the naturalist Comte de Buffon during a series of lectures he gave at the French Academy of Sciences. After images would be defined in greater detail in 1857 by Michel Eugene Chevreul as the law of successive contrast, along with two companion laws, the laws of simultaneous contrast and mixed contrast. Each of these three laws of human color vision describe the ways in which cone cells and other light-sensitive cells of the retina behave in perception. 
Chevrule outlines how the strength of cone cells located on the retina wax and wane in ability, or as Goethe notes, how the retina recovers itself by a succession of vibrations after a powerful external impression it, it received. End quote. The essential principle at play with Chevreul's laws of color vision is how cone cells, which are individually sensitive to certain ranges of electromagnetic energy wavelengths of visible light, vibrate as they are stimulated. As they vibrate, they tire and weaken and send fewer energy signals into the retina and to other light-sensitive cells as part of the visual cascade of information being sent to the mind. As these cone cells tire, the energy signals from other, less stimulated cone cells become more noticeable in color vision. And because all objects and planes transmit or reflect a certain amount of the entire visible spectrum, the signals indicating the presence of these secondary wavelengths dull the perception of the dominant color wavelengths. Thus, the mixing wavelengths, as per additive mixing, combine to form white, and if, it not, and if it is not bright, white reads as gray or black if there is very little light. In other words, the mixing of wavelengths lower the perceived chromatic intensity of the color of the object. To support his assertions that all harmonious color palettes mix to gray, Johannes Itten cites Ewald Herring, who lived from 1834 to 1918, and he published his findings on op opponent process theory in 1892. Herring theorized, as did Goethe, that the mind searches for harmony, and as it does, it achieves balance and equilibrium when colors re return to their essence of black, white, or gray. And Itten, and um, Itten is quoting Herring here in Itten's book, <laughs> quote, to medium or neutral gray corresponds to that condition of the optic substance in which dissemination, its consumption by vision, and assimilation, its regeneration, are equal, so that the quantity of optic substance remains the same. In other words, medium gray generates a state of complete equilibrium in the eye." End quote. Here I will end the reading of part one of Harmony. Part two will focus on quantity or proportions of colors, how much of each color is needed to create a harmonious relationship and the history there. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again 
for their production, consulting, and editing.